John's Gospel, chapter 9 this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we just love it because you never know what you're going to hit in any given week. And it's all exciting and it's all stuff that we want to have built into our lives. And so we pick things up in John chapter 9. Now there's no break in this chapter up. The whole thing is all about one thing. And so here we go. Now Jesus passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground. And he made clay with the saliva and the dirt, and he anointed, that's a gracious word for it, he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And then he gave him instructions. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. And therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is, this, is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. And therefore they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. And then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I was blind. <laughs> it's, a very, it's actually a very humorous series of things that is happening here. They brought him who formerly was blind, then to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man does not come from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Then they said to the blind man, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him what he had, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents uh, of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so they, again they called the man who was blind, and they said to him, Give God the glory, we know this man is a sinner. And he answered and he said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. And then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become, also become his disciples? He's asking, are these honest 
inquiries here? Because that's the only place I'm going to lead you, gentlemen. And then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. Who, we know what, that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from. And yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You're making completely too much sense. You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. They cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and also, and said to him, uh, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, if you didn't see what you've just seen, you would have no sin in rejecting me. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Every chapter, every book, the volume of the book, every verse, every paragraph, every jot, and every tittle. And we have sung of your love this morning for us, Lord. It leaves us amazed. We thank you for how rich we are in Christ Jesus and all because of your love for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this passage of Scripture and as we pray so often, take it off of the page of this wonderful book that we hold and give it by your Holy Spirit a living, daily practical place in our hearts and in our minds. We want to be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And we look to you for that work of your spirit this morning. We pray for your blessings upon all of the churches that are teaching your word in this city today. We ask that you would strengthen them, meet with them, Lord. Strengthen and enlarge the body of Christ today in this place and in all of these places. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Gospel of John is built around seven great miracles that he records in his Gospel and seven great I Am statements uh, of Jesus. And these miracles and these I Am statements are recorded by God and by the Apostle John with the intent that Anyone who would read this gospel would come to, as a result of his I am statements, his declaration that he is God, a declaration backed up by these miracles, would come to a proper conclusion concerning Jesus. And that is that he is indeed the Jewish, promised Jewish Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he is God in human flesh. The context of chapter 9 is chapter 8, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, in which Jesus came to the defense of a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, 
Jesus defended not her sin, but he defended her against the hypocrisy of these Pharisees, these religious leaders who were uh, looking to condemn her, not really interested in, you know, the uh, justness of the law of Moses, but their intent was to trap Jesus and divide his support. And at the close of that chapter, in, in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus plainly declares his deity to the, these religious leaders. Most assuredly, I say to you, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am is an unmistakable name for God uh, in the Old Testament. So they responded by picking up stones with the intent of now uh, stoning Jesus to death in that uh, court of the women. And Jesus responded by ending that Bible study. He exited the temple area there uh, in Jerusalem and he made his way through them as the passage uh, teaches. Now Jesus has no intention of ever getting in a rock fight with a bunch of Pharisees. He's not going to diminish himself in that kind of a way. So his response to these religious leaders and their unrighteous rejection of him and they're picking up stones and now threatening him with physical violence. He doesn't pick up stones now to throw at them. He has uh, other means to get to them. And he simply leaves that area of the temple knowing that he's going to create a problem for them in just a couple of minutes. And as he's making his way from that temple area with his disciples, he pro uh, proceeds to perform a miracle that only God could do as a confirmation of his deity. And he knew full well that in doing this miracle in this man's life, the news was going to come back to these very same Pharisees. That it was going to come to their attention. And it was just his nonviolent way of just saying to them, now try to explain this, independent of my deity, independent of my claims concerning myself. And so he doesn't fight their denial with a throwing of stones, but he fights their denial both then and now by producing an endless stream of changed lives for which there can be no other explanation except that he is the Son of God. The miracle that Jesus performs on this man is an interesting one. We're told in verse 1 that as they're departing, Jesus and the disciples pass by a man on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, beggars were not allowed to call out in their begging. They could sit there with a cup or a container or whatever, but they could not call out. But they were free to beg. And the place that if I was a beggar where I would want to beg would be at, at a religious place, certainly at, at the temple, the, to beg from a group of people that have been hopefully fashioned by the God of the Old Testament. It was a very generous and a very, very gracious God. So he camps himself there, and it's probably his regular spot, and he's dependent on the compassion of everyone else for his livelihood. And when the disciples see this man who was born blind, it produced a question in their minds. And the question that came up in their minds, they then posed to Jesus. And the question was, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? That, and for them, there was, was only one of two reasons for a man to be born blind. Both of them had to do with sin. Either he sinned, 
And if he was born blind, he had to sin before he was born. So he had to sin in the womb. Or his parents had to be guilty of sin. Somehow these kind of deformities or these kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of things that, you know, marks of fallenness that marked people's lives, it, it, it had to be a, a result of not just the sin of the fall, but individual sin in somebody's life. And so that's, that's the way they thought it was. And so they opened this discussion with Jesus. And it really is, every time I read this passage, I can't help but think how many of these discussions this guy had to sit through. Oh, no. The who sinned, this man or his parents' theological debate that I get to be treated to once again. I have no idea how many times he's probably heard this thing. And, and so... The, he becomes the object of their theological discussion. Now, behind their question, again, is the assumption that all blindness, as well as, as any physical handicap or any physical imperfection, it's the result of the sin in somebody's life, either in the person or in their parents. And that was the teaching of the day. The Jewish rabbis taught that you could sin even before you were born because the Bible teaches that uh, life begins at the moment of conception and uh, we are a person at that moment in time and we are descendants of Adam and Eve thoroughly fallen that, at that point in time. Uh, and so, thus, we are, a child is, capable of, capable of sin in the womb. That's what they taught. I don't know how they rob a bank or what they would do. But one of the scripture references that they used was, re remember Jacob and Esau, they wrestled in their mother's womb. So there's always, already this competition and this fighting, and so they say, see, you can even sin before you're born. The, the rabbis also taught that uh, these kind of handicaps could be the result of a sin that the parents had committed. Now, how cruel is that? That's a teaching of the land. That's what everybody thought. So you have a child that's born blind. You have a child that's born lame. They're going to narrow it down to one of these, these two things. And imagine if you as a parent, that's, you can't do anything crueler to a parent, then all of a sudden we begin to rack, you know, all the way through our histories, our sinful past, and we know we do some terrible things because of what any of us have done, and which one was it, God, that you're getting back at me for because of in, in having, uh, taking it out on my child? That's, that's the, that was the religious teaching of, of the day. And, and so they, uh, probably the rabbis were you know, taking a, misinterpreting Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, which talked about the sins of the fathers being on the children down to the third and fourth generations. But it says, of those who hate me. I'm talking about people that love the Lord. Now, the idea that every time something hard happens in our lives or something bad happens in our life, that that has to be the result of some sin in my life or that God is somehow punishing me is a very prevalent view today. It, it's, it's not infrequent that when I go to visit somebody in a hospital or I go to an emergency room because there's been a terrible accident of some kind and everybody, the family and the parents and, or the children or whoever in the middle of this 
really very, very difficult uh, tragedy that, that they're processing. Uh, and all. someone will say, I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why God would do this uh, to me. I don't know why God would do this to us. I don't have any known sin in my life. I'm walking with God. I'm trying to do the best that I can. And it's amazing how even today our first thought is in times of tragedy to think God must be against me or it must be some kind of a sin in my life that is, is causing this. And that's, that's the tendency that we can have. Prone to think that every handicapped child who's born, every da- disaster that occurs in, in our life or in the life of a, a loved one is a result of some sin in our life or God is displeased with us. And even spiritual people do that. Remember Job's comforters? Miserable comforters are ye all. And they were terrible. Chapter after chapter after chapter. Job, this doesn't happen to righteous people that are walking with God right. There's got to be sin in your life. How many ways can they say it? Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 34, chapter 35. And that was their feeling. Just fess up and you'll get out from under the mess of this whole mess. And it's important, I think, to realize the difficult things, bad things, even tragic things happen in this world simply because and supremely because this world is a fallen place. When tragedy happens, I never ever think, not yet, and so I'm, I'm not like someone who's attained or anything like that, but my first thought is always to the fallenness of this world. Never to God. Never to blaming God. The reason that there's disease, the reason that there's tragedy, the reason that there's death, the reason that there's all, so much of what is the mess that makes planet Earth the mess that it is, it comes from the fall. It doesn't have its origin in, in God at all. And so we have to be careful not to think that Every handicap or every disease or every tragedy is a result of some hidden sin in our life or some unknown sin in our life or, or, or that's in somebody else's life. We live in a fallen world and this is just a part of it. One day it'll give way to a new heaven and a new earth. One day these bodies will give way to a new body, but that time isn't yet. And so we deal with the consequences of the fall all of the time in our lives. Now Jesus' response to their questions, their their question in verse 3 through 5, is interesting. He plainly tells them that this man's blindness wasn't the result of the sin of, of the man or his parents. He told them that the proper way to view this man's blindness, this man's fallenness, was to view it as an opportunity for God's power to be revealed in his life. God didn't cause it, but that God would work it together for good and for his purposes. And he declared then to these disciples that he had the power to do the works of God. And that very, very significantly, especially realizing that he is saying these things in the hearing of the blind man. He hears a guy saying something that he has never heard say in his presence before. 
I have the power to do the works of God. That's going to do something in your heart when you've been born blind. And then further he goes on and he declares himself to be the light of the world. And if I'm that blind man, I'm thinking this is something new, this is something good. And uh, by the way, mister, do you do anything more than talk? And Jesus, of course, does more than talk. And he backs it up by bringing light into this man's world. We're told there in verses 6 and 7, he spit up, spat on the ground, and this man's tracking with everything. He's got his, you know, when you're blind, your other senses pick things up. He hears somebody spit on the ground, somebody's doing something with the dirt, and the next thing he knows, it's being applied to his eyes. And Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which was a fair walk for a blind man, Jerusalem. But it would have been a walk he was very familiar with. He sends him to the pool of Siloam. And John wants us to know the name, what the name of the pool of Siloam means. It means sent. What Jesus is doing in this miracle is he is declaring and revealing that he has been sent by God. By sending this man to the pool of scent to receive his sight. A beautiful passage. What does the man do? He says, that, this is the hokiest thing I've ever had anybody try to do to me yet sitting here all these years. No, he didn't. We're told that he just went down to the pool of Siloam and washed his, the, the clay from his eyes and he came back seeing just obedience to Jesus' simple command produced a changed life. Now put yourself in the guy's place. And when he goes down there and he's got enough faith to do it, he goes down there and he washes that water, nice clean water of the pool of Siloam, and for the first time he can see. He can see stuff that all he's been able to do all of his life is just hear what these things are. And now he can see what these sounds and noises and all these things come from. And so he receives his sight and he lived happily ever after. Going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience and never knowing another day of trouble in his life. Doesn't work that way. To become an object of Jesus' supernatural power to change lives is going to make an awful lot of people very happy in this world. But it's going to make a lot of other people very unhappy in this world. In other words, there's a price to be paid for opened eyes. There's a price to be paid for changed lives because our lives now become a testimony to the power of God and the truthfulness of Jesus' claims concerning himself. Now notice the reaction of other people to his, his changed life. His neighbors there in verses 8 through 12, their initial response was unbelief. They said, well, well, it looks like him. But it can't be him. They've only known him to be blind. And now he sees and he's... It, 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 it wouldn't have been. He left here this morning. He was blind as he's ever been. This guy's not blind anymore. He's walking around like a sighted man. It can't be the same guy. It looks just like him, but there's no way it can't be. That just doesn't happen. It's never happened in the entire history of the Old Testament. 
I hadn't. That a man born blind had received his sight. It can't be. And so, the unbelief. It's interesting to me, at least, when you read that passage of their dealing, uh, the neighbors dealing with a man who was born blind. Not one of them calls him by name. They call him the man, that man, that neighbor. <laughs> Nobody bothered to learn his name all these years. He's just a guy with a disease. He's just a guy with a handicap. He's just a guy that's known for his fallenness, his, you know, great uh, physical or great flaw in his life. Nobody bothered to even get to know him in his neighborhood. His parents, their response, verses 18 through 23, out of fear of religious persecution from the Pharisees, they won't come alongside their son and stand with him against their interrogation of the Pharisees. This is just so sad. They were so threatening anyone that would profess Christ with being excommunicated out of the synagogue, which meant your name was mud. Bye-bye family. Bye-bye job. Bye-bye money. Bye-bye everything. It was a huge thing to be excommunicated out of a synagogue by the Pharisees as a Jew. So here's this day in which, I mean, a day in which should have been one of the happiest days of this mom, of this dad, where they just go running over to this uh, man, put their arms around him, can't believe it, what happened, look at this, and, and stand with him against the interrogation. They don't do it. They say, he's our son. He's born blind, we know that but about how he received his sight. I mean, they handle it with a coldness of, I don't know what. In terms of how he received his sight, he's of age, you ask him. Uh, and it, 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 uh, their response is lukewarm at best. They just leave him hanging, left just to stand on his own. And, and how deflating for him. And then the Pharisees, when the man... Uh, the neighbors bring Jesus to these Pharisees there in verse 13. They don't have any idea the Pharisees are going to give them the third degree. They think the Pharisees are going to be excited about it. Look what, something's happened right here. It's never happened before. The Pharisees, when they're told that what Jesus had done in giving sight to the man, they, as the people were excited to bring them to him, I mean, if they thought... And if the man thought and if the neighbors thought the Pharisees were going to be excited, I mean, they were in for a shock. Far from being excited, I mean, their treatment of this man is just appalling. And you notice there in verse 15, they asked him how he received his sight, and he told them. They said, well, this, this, can't, this miracle can't be a, a, of God. This is because, and this guy can't be of God. He's a sinner because he didn't honor the Sabbath day and he didn't, he didn't keep our traditions. But there were others that said, no way, man. I, we've been following you and rejecting Jesus this far, but this is going too far. There is no way he could have done what he's just done here and, and not be of God. And so this fight breaks out, even among the Pharisees. This division breaks out. I'm so much for his happy day. And then in verse 17, they ask the man his opinion of the one who healed him, and he declared him to be a prophet. He's a prophet. That's probably the highest thing he knew in his mind and in his heart, to call someone 
who was spiritual and religious. He said, he's got to be a, a, a prophet. And of course, in the end here, they don't believe his story. Verse 18, they in essence call him a liar. And uh, he's just someone who was never blind and he's just fabricated this story. Wow. How disheartening is that? It's like, like one, one blow after another. This great miracle has happened. He ought to be just sailing, flying high, and, and just one disheartening event after another. And then there in verse 24 through 34, they, the Pharisees aren't done this. Got, you know, abuse of a former blind man, part two, that takes place here. They, they, can't, they can't deny the fact that he had been born blind now. They can't deny the fact that a miracles occur, that, that he's received his, his sight. And, and, so they, and, and they, so they command him, now you give God the glory, verse 24, for the miracle, but don't attribute that miracle to Jesus. He's just a sinner. And, and so that's what they leave him with. The man starts to try to reason with him there in verse 30. And he says, listen, a, a great miracle has occurred here, again, unprecedented in Jewish history. And if Jesus were not God, then he could not have done this, verse 33. They're so infuriated by the water tightness of his logic and his argument that they cast him uh, uh, out of, of their presence and then almost certainly out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him for thinking that he could teach them anything of a spiritual nature. And they held to their view that he had to be a sinner because he was born blind. Now notice what Jesus does with this man. Jesus goes and finds the man. Verse 35. Imagine how this guy's head is spinning. Should have been the best day of his life. And nothing is adding up the way that you would think it would have added up. It's a pretty miserable place to be. I mean, his old head has to be spinning, I think. He's received his sight. The whole city of Jerusalem, I mean, should have just exploded in praise and celebration, faith in Jesus. And instead, it's, it's resulted in the confusion of wondering why in the world his parents wouldn't have been jumping up and down for joy over the, the sight that their son had and why they didn't come alongside him to support him at whatever the cost and the light of this miracle. The confusion of, of what kind of religious leaders would excommunicate a man for simply receiving his sight and telling them the reason why telling them the only logical conclusion that a logical person could come to in the light of the facts that Jesus was a man, as he said in verse 11, then describes him as a prophet in verse 17, and then in verse 33 he declares Jesus to be a man come from God. And the interesting thing to me about this guy is far from shaking his faith in Jesus, all of this persecution and neglect only serves to make his conclusions concerning Jesus even more settled in his life. So Jesus hunts this guy down and finds him. This is the condition that he's in. And he reveals himself to the man as his healer and as the Son of God. And the man then puts his faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, and he worshipped him. And now his understanding of Jesus has come to full maturity. A man, a prophet, a man come from God, 
and then declaring him to be the Son of God and then personally putting his faith in him as his Savior. I like this man a lot. I think about what a day he had. It's all in one day. Think about how high his highs were on that day. Think about how low his lows were on that day. I mean, what a day it had been. The day starts with having to endure another theological discussion by sighted people on the cause of blindness. The discussion ends with a man claiming to be the light of the world and claiming that he's able to reverse any consequence of man's fall in the Garden of Eden and, and able to make any of that into something that brings glory to God. He then allows the same man to make clay out of spittle and dirt, apply it to his eyes, and then with, with the command to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash it off, he goes there without, he actually goes down there without any promise of healing at all. No promise that that would result. Obviously implied, but no promise of it all. And he does it, and he receives his sight, and the light of the world, boom, brings light into his world. The one sent from the Father, appropriately enough, as we said, heals him at a pool of water called scent. But then he endures the unbelief of his neighbors. He's forced to in, in witness the very painful weakness of his parents forced to stand alone against the attack of the religious leaders then he endures the multiple hostile interrogations and attacks from those same religious leaders but you watch him the abandonment doesn't phase him the threats don't phase him the bullying doesn't phase him the rejection doesn't phase him the scorn doesn't phase him the excommunication doesn't phase him he is willing to stand all alone if necessary, he is willing to lose all materially and all relationally, if necessary. And I ask myself, as I look at this guy, I look forward to seeing him in heaven. And I look at this brother of mine and I ask myself, why? What could be so valuable to him that he would be able to face all of that and not even blink? And he tells us why in verse 25. Because, in verse 25, he gives his testimony. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a testimony. He reminds the Pharisees of what he was prior to Jesus coming into his life. A condition, by the way, that the Pharisees had probably decades to address and change if they were able to do that and were able to do nothing. He reminds the Pharisees of what he was before Jesus came into his life and then he reminds the Pharisees that it was Jesus who changed his life, who gave him his sight. And that's what a testimony is for the child of God. To be able to tell people, this is the person that I was. These are the marks of fallenness from that ancient garden of Eden that I could no sooner free myself from and change myself of than that man could change his blindness. And Jesus came into my life and this is the quality of life 
that I have known since. That's a testimony. What I was, what I am now, and the whole reason for it, the power and the wisdom and the love of Christ in my life and in our life. And I want you to notice there two phrases, one in verse 24 and the other in verse 25. In verse 24, the Pharisees, they try to badger the man and intimidate him with their, we know, give God the glory, we know that this man is a sinner. That was a considerable, we know. It's the entire, almost the entire religious establishment standing behind this, we know. And so they bring that up uh, against him. And you notice in verse 25, his reply to that considerable, we know, are his words, I know. He said, I know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And that I know withstood all of their we know. Because our history with God is a stubborn, stubborn fact. And no one can take it away from us. No one can take our testimony away from us. I think about the different ways that Jesus uses to bring people to faith in Him. There's a certain kind of person who comes to believe in Jesus as their Savior through a very, very long uh, kind of academic theological process. They will study all of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. They'll investigate all, all, all Jesus' life and they'll put it under the microscope, all of his life, all of his claims and, and the light of the scriptures. They'll go into Bible prophecy. They'll examine the case for God and the case for Jesus as the Messiah based upon the witness of creation and the witness of design and the witness of conscience. And then they will make their commitment to Christ on the basis of those things, and that commitment will be unshakable all the days of their life. And for them, their theology precedes their faith. Their theology precedes their personal experience with God. And that's wonderful. But then there's another kind of person who's like this man. They know nothing of theology. They don't know a prophecy to save their life. They don't know nothing of the argument of design or creation or conscience for the existence of God. They know nothing of the testimony of the Scriptures to Jesus as the promised Messiah. They don't know anything about the origin of sin in human history. They don't know anything about Sabbaths. They don't know anything about traditions. They don't know anything about religion. All they know is they were just going about their business of the daily grind of life one day and then one day at a time of great need, Jesus busted into their world and changed their life, and it was a pure, no denying it, only God could have done that experience. And they put their faith in Jesus at that time in their life, and you will have no more success moving them from their faith on the basis of their history with Jesus than these Pharisees did with moving these this man from his faith in Jesus based upon his experience 
and his changed life. One kind of person starts with theology and moves into relationship. This kind of person begins with a personal relationship. And the more technical aspects of this walk with God, the theology, these kinds of things, the understanding of the Bible, these things will have to catch up to them a little bit. But for the rest of their life, every single unbelieving and faithless we know that is brought against them and their faith in Jesus will be met with their personal testimony of I know and they will never be moved on the basis of that history. You can put that kind of person in any kind of academic setting You can put them in any kind of intimidating peer pressure setting. You can put them in a hostile family environment and nothing and no one will move them from their appreciation in Jesus and their testimony of what He did and He alone could have done in their lives and their recognition of it. I know what I used to be and I know what He has done in my life. And everybody else had decades to do that in my life. And only Jesus did it. And now the Johnny-come-latelys want to come and tell me they would have done it for me now. But they're too late. The beautiful thing about that kind of saint, and I love both kinds of saints, is you'll no more move that person than you'll move the person who is steeped in the Old Testament prophecies. Our testimonies are powerful things. They are a powerful encouragement to the faith of other people. But our personal testimonies are a powerful encouragement to our own faith. When's the last time you told yourself your testimony? You need to hear it as much as everybody else needs to hear it. I need to hear it in my own life as much as anyone else. And sometimes when things are in life are going a little sideways for us and things are hard and it really does start to cost us something to remain faithful in our witness for Christ, it's good to remember what we used to be before that day that he walked into our lives and remember the kind of person he's made us into as a result of his entrance into our life. I love the old song, I serve a risen Savior, He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives because Jeremiah the prophet, He lives within my heart and the theologians will look at that and they'll mock it as being too syrupy and too emotional and it's too experiential it won't be of any value real value in a Christian's life it'll be something that'll give way you know in the face of persecution but don't make me choose between my theology 
and my understanding of the Bible, which I'm thankful for beyond words. Don't make me choose between that, though, and my personal testimony of how Jesus broke through into my world and changed my life. How he lifted me up out of the miry clay and he set my feet on a rock. Both those things, they're like my two children. They both do something wonderful in me. And those two things, the witness of the scriptures and the power of a personal testimony, unite those things together and now you really have someone who's steadfast and immovable. And I want to encourage some of us here today, take some time today to freshly remember your salvation story. And may it bring a great and rich blessing to your heart and be a part of what anchors you right now in your walk with God and in your faithfulness to Him in the face of any storms of doubt or unbelief that may be trying to assail you. If you're paying a price this morning, a great price, for having opened eyes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. But if you sit here today and you have never made Jesus your Savior, never made him your Lord, what this story tells you is no one is beyond the reach of his love and his power. There is no fallenness that he cannot reach into a person's life and miraculously change that area of their life. No addiction, no personality flaw, no anything that comes from that ancient Garden of Eden is beyond his ability to change in our lives if we will but invite him into our lives to now do what it is that, that he wants to do in our lives. You say, well, what happened? They're going to come up here and they're going to put mud in my eye? No, do you know what the equivalent of the spit and the dirt and the clay that was put in, their eye, in his eye, the equivalent of that, and then the words, go and wash these things, the equivalent of that today is Jesus saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him, trust in Jesus for salvation, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says to you, not go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. He says to each of us here today that doesn't know, put your trust in me as your Savior. Believe in me. Receive me into your life. And then you see if scales don't fall off and an entire spiritual realm doesn't open up to your understanding and your sight that you could never see before. And he'll be faithful to do it. And there's going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service that have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to invite Jesus to come into your life and then now have this become your testimony in, in, in your life, his ability to come in and change anything for the glory of God. And he'll do it today.
That's something I don't have to say. I don't have to stand up here and say, you know, he's got like a, about a 70% track record. I hope you're not in the 30%. I get to stand up here and say, as a witness to the Scriptures, and speaking the Scriptures, that anyone that does that, he will come in this morning and do a miracle in your life. You can go to Costco this afternoon, a changed person. You're going to do something this afternoon. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, this morning in this simple place of 4300 American Avenue in Modesto, California, just right in the middle of a big old Central Valley, as a group of simple people, we give you praise this morning for the day that you broke into our lives and made everything different for us. We thank you, Lord, for that testimony. We thank you for opened eyes. And Lord, we thank you even for the price that is paid in this world for having opened eyes. We consider ourselves to be rich, Lord, because we get to live our lives in a way that brings glory to you and gives hope to this world that what you have done in us, you will do for them. Thank you for the richness of our life. Thank you, Father, for our Savior. Thank you for a free salvation. Thank you for the personal relationship that you've wrapped up in all of this. Lord, we just want you to know we consider ourselves to be the richest people in the world because of you. We give you praise. We give you thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.